for those of you who are visitors or have been asleep for the last few months, uh, we've been doing a series on wisdom, what wisdom is. And we've been looking mainly, haven't we, at the, uh, the book of Proverbs. Um, and it's been great. It's been really interesting. And for the, last, uh, for the next few weeks and for the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at um, what wisdom looks like in terms of the cross. We're leading up to Easter. Um, so uh, the book of Proverbs has instructed us, hasn't it, on how to think and act in everyday situations about work, finance, family, in your neighbourhood, how you spend your social life. And, um, and it talks about, it's framed by this relationship. What does a life look like to be framed by a relationship with God, the one who's perfect in wisdom? But we've said that wisdom is much more than just knowing stuff, isn't it? It's much more than just knowledge. It's actually, um, it encompasses lots of different things like insight, sound judgment, uh, prudence, which I learned the meaning of last time, uh, righteousness, so making the right choices. And really, wisdom is knowledge in action. Wisdom is knowledge lived out. It's no good just having knowledge if it doesn't lead to action. So if Proverbs is about how we, how we should think and, uh, with wisdom, today's passage really is about how God has showed his perfect wisdom and action through the cross. Now, a lot of this, most of you, if you've been Christians for a while, you will know. You'll know inside out. Um, but I've got to confess that every single year, I said this to a few people, every single year I get to Easter and I think, do I still believe the story of the cross? Do I really believe that Jesus not only lived, because we all know that that was true, not only that he died, we all know that was true, Everybody, nobody would deny that, but that he rose again and the difference that the cross actually makes. And nearly every year since I've been a Christian, I've questioned that around this time. And sometimes it's quite unsettling because you think, oh, I don't know, I shouldn't really be, should I be really questioning this? Because, you know, I'm a Christian, I've been a Christian since I was 17. But actually, every single time I question, there's times when I doubt and there's questions, that, and I go back to the evidence and I, th- I look over and I research again. And then I think back at my life and the way I was when I was 17 and what has changed. And I think, have I actually changed at all? And then I think, yes, I have. I've changed dramatically since that, since that time. And every time, it actually bolsters, bolsters my faith. It increases my faith through the doubting, through the questioning. And I've done exactly the same again. As I thought, what, what difference does the cross actually make? If it's true, if it's true, if the statements and the claims of the cross are true, what difference does it make not only to my life, but to the world. And preparing this sermon has been really difficult, actually, because I think the longer I have, the more time I have to, to ruminate and mess about with different, uh, different angles, and then I, I throw stuff away that I was going to say, and then anyway, so probably I just need about a day to prepare, and that probably be just as good. <clears throat> but it's been, it's been really good. So today I want to focus on three things. God's past action, God's present action, and God's future action. Or put another way, we were saved we are saved and we will be saved. Okay. But first of all, we need to quickly go over what, is, what are we saved from? People, Christians talk about it, don't they? We are saved. But what are we actually saved from? Uh, Niels talked about this last week and Steve did the week before. But just a really quick recap. What was the problem? Now, oh, I've done that already. What, were we, what was the actual problem? Sin. Easy thing to say, isn't it? Oh, sin is a problem. But what as is sin? Well, it's not just the problems, the mess we make of our lives. It's not just the poor attitudes we have. It's not just when we make mistakes and we have bad behavior. But as Neil said last week, sin became this thing that's had a stranglehold, 
not only on our individual lives, but on the world as a whole. Sin is like this it's, it's encompassing power, this kind of nebulous thing. It's hard to, to grab it. To, you can't avoid it. It's there. You can't break free from it. It's not just, oh, well, I've messed up. I'm sinful and I, that I fall short of God's laws, although that is true. Um, and um, before the cross, it was like a, a, a power that, that couldn't be broken free from. And the consequences, well, we all know the consequences of that, that power. It causes decay in our relationships. Um, it causes decay in, in the world, in the material world. Things wear out, disease, war, things start to break down. And ultimately, it causes separation, not just from one another, but it causes separation from God. We all know what it's like to, when we sin against one another. So when we say things out of turn, it damages, doesn't it? It, separ- it causes separation in a relationship that is really hard sometimes to bridge. Sometimes we fall out in such a way that it becomes very difficult. In fact, it becomes impossible almost to go back to the relationship we had before. There's a separation there. And that was true. Before the cross, that was true of our relationship with God. So it separates us from God. And, um, but what is the solution? Well, what today, today's passages I'm going to be looking at is Romans 5 and a bit of Romans 8. It's one of my favorite books in the Bible. And I think it's because I'm a sort of person who thinks a lot and sometimes overthinks about things. And you think about what you see, you're bombarded every day, aren't you, with, with, the, with bad news <laughs> from the newspapers and on the TV. There's, never, there's very rarely any good news, is there? Other, other than some naff story at the end of Look Northwest, isn't there? There's always some naff story of like, oh, this lady helped a duck across a road. You know, it's like <laughs> some really rubbish story of good news. Is that the only good news you could find in the Northwest today? It's nearly always, 99.9% of it is bad news, isn't it? Okay. And um, so we're bombarded with that, and nobody seems to have any solution to it. It never changes. It only, we only get more bad news. All the philosophies that have been before can't answer it. No, no brilliant political leader can solve it. No philosopher, no great example. No, nothing can seem to be a solution for sin. But what Paul's talking about today is, if it's true, is a solution to the mess the world is in, not just our own lives, but the material world as well. So if these statements are true, this is of infinite importance. If it's not true, Nicky Gumbel says in the Alpha Course, if Christianity, if not true, is of no importance at all. It's of no importance. We're just wasting our time here. And we're just, you know, we're spending our time on a Sunday. It's lovely to be with you all. Don't forget, don't get me wrong. You're great people to be around. It's nice to sing songs together. It's good to have some inspiring words. But if, if it's not true, it's of no importance. But if it is true, it's of infinite importance, not just to you and me, but to the world at large, to the universe. Okay? And I've, every Easter I come back to this and I believe it's true. Okay? And today we're going to look at some of the verses, some of the grand statements Paul makes about the solution to the mess of the world. And what is the solution? Obviously, the easy answer is the cross. But we're going to unpack some of that through the lens of Romans 5, verses 1 to 11. So should we read that together? I'm going to talk a little bit about Romans 8 as well near the end. So Romans 5, verse 1. Paul writing to an early church based in Rome. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings, because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, 
and character hope. And hope does not disappoint us. Because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, whom he has given us. You see, just at the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we've now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So God makes, I mean, Paul, should I say, makes some very, very grand statements in this, this passage. This is one of the reasons I love Romans so much, because all the way through the book of Romans are these amazing statements, of which, if they're true, are of infinite importance to us. God has acted, we were saved. He says in here, verse 1, Christ died. And it says here, just at the right time, see verse 6. Now, interesting, have you ever thought, why did Christ come at that point in history? Why did God not do it earlier? Why did he wait to that point? Now, depending on your view of, of how many years we've been here, um, apparently modern, if, in, the, in one view, we've, you know, if the, if some people think that, that humans have only been about 10,000 years. Some people think modern humans about 50,000 to 100,000 and so on, depending on your view um, of, of science and, and the past and everything. But why at that particular time did Christ die for us? God must have known in advance in his infinite wisdom, what was going to happen. He must have known the mess that was going to be made. Why then? Why, why, did, he take, why did Noah's flood? Why did, he, why did he flood the world after making it, you know, seemingly after five minutes of making it? Because it seemed such a, a mess that he wanted to start again. And that didn't work, did it? Because it just happened again. And then he'd send prophets, wouldn't he, to, to go and tell people, you know, well, this is, how, this is God's law. This is the way you should be living. And, and they could, that didn't make any difference. And so Christ comes and I, I don't, this is not a question that I think anybody probably has the answer. If you do have the answer, tell me afterwards. But I don't think we have, there's a, there is a question like this we'll never have the answer to. We don't really know why he waited to that point in his infinite wisdom to do it. But he did. And Paul suggests for at least four things, as, uh, re, four reasons why it was the right time for God to act in this way. He says in verse 6 that while we were weak, Christ died for us while we were weak. We were weak human race, not just us individually, but the human race was powerless, as I was said, to resist sin. We couldn't do it on our own. We couldn't overcome the power that seems to have a stranglehold over us that, that causes us to act and behave in ways that are not godly. We couldn't do it. We were weak. Verse 6 also says we were ungodly. We had no reverence for God and his ways. We would rather live for ourselves and uh, we, we, don't, we don't prefer God's ways. Verse 8 says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Sinners, now, it seems to be getting worse in severity, doesn't it? It seems to be getting gradually worse throughout this. Like, we were weak. Well, okay, you can, you can sort of forgive somebody who's a bit weak. Ungodly, all right, well, maybe they're just a bit ignorant. Well, sinners is like going, well, actually, sinners, we're falling short here, but we sort of know what we're doing, but we're falling short anyway of God's moral standards. And then finally, verse 10, he says, we were enemies. So it's gradually getting worse here. Um, and, and I'm sure that, you could see yourself in at least one of those categories, if not all of them, like me. Um, enemies, we are willfully, we've all probably at some point in our lives, every human being that's ever lived has chosen to, to live for themselves first. 
and to say, actually, God, not really sure that your way is best. I think I'm going to go myself. And Paul recognizes that there were at least there are at least four things, four four um, reasons why that time when Jesus came was the right time. It was almost like he was saying, right, enough is enough. Now I know that God must have known this in advance as well, so I still don't know why. But anyway, enough was enough. Something drastic, something deliberate, something um, amazing had to happen in order to try and deal with this problem of sin. <clears throat> so through the cross, um, God's perfect wisdom has been d- demonstrated in at least four ways. And I, in, as all good preachers try to do, they always try to use like alliteration, don't they? Or some kind of points that you know have, have quirky little titles and things. So I've, fo- I've, I've found four things that begin with D, just in case it helps you to remember them. First of all, the cross was deliberate. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> there we go. I sound a bit like a horse then when I coughed. <coughs> deliberate action. So God's action was deliberate. It wasn't an accident. Neil mentioned it briefly last week that it was timely. It wasn't that Jesus just by accident got caught up in the mess of his day, got clashed with the authorities, which he did, and the religious elite, and he just and that just happened to be by chance he he was made an example of because the Romans were cruel. That's true as well. But it wasn't an accident. Jesus said, Nobody takes my life from me, I give it up freely. Jesus could have avoided the cross. He didn't. And although we don't know why, God has planned that event in human history before time even began. God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit knew what was going to happen. And they looked at this time and they were deliberate and they said, this is the time that Jesus would die. It wasn't just an unfortunate accident. God was deliberate in his action. He was also decisive. The cross leaves us in no doubt. Everybody knows, every culture and every part of the earth knows about the cross. Not everybody believes it. Well, they know they believe that it happened because nobody disputes that. But they don't believe that what it meant is as significant as what we believe it does. But they, it leaves us in no doubt. The cross is a definitive and a definite point in human history. It's not disputed. And what it leaves us in no doubt as Christians is that if God died for us while we were weak, ungodly, enemies... What was the other one? Thank you, you were listening. Sinners. I forgot. Um, If God does that while we were all those things, it leaves us in no doubt that his love is unconditional. That some of you, and and what what is the difference that actually makes us? Well, if we, for people to actually love other people, you need to know that you're loved. So we talked about motherly love and people that had, that, you know, influence, motherly figures that people have had. They've needed those, that love in their lives to be able to then live out their lives in a secure and confident way. Without that love, you can't really be that secure in yourself and you can't really love others that well. And um, even if we don't have those motherly or fatherly figures in our lives, we can all point to the cross and say, God loves me. I know it sounds really trite and really twee, but actually it's not because this is a definitive and drastic and bloody event in human history but it it proves to you if if you ever are not sure whether you are loved or secure God loves you it was a definitive and decisive um, act in human history and Neil again Neil always seems to steal bits of my sermon Um, he did it again this morning I'm going to come on to a bit that he stole but he did it last week as well Uh, and both of us were robbing this from from actually again Nicky Gumbrell on the Alpha course but he talked about um about the difference between in the Second World War between D-Day and Victory in, in Europe Day, VE Day. And um, whilst the, the war still carried on 
for a year or so after D-Day. D-Day was the definitive, the defining moment in history in that, in that, um, in that war. That was what broke the, the defences of Hitler, the enemy, and the biggest enemy to the world at that time was him and his forces, wasn't it? And, it, and the, the evil regime and the evil attitudes, the ridiculous um, attitudes and uh, actions that he took. And whilst it carried on for another year, D-Day, the storming of the beaches at Normandy, actually broke his power at that point. It broke the chains that he had of the world. And it, and it was a mopping up process for another year or so after that, which was a victory in Europe day before it actually officially declared, uh, deceased. But actually, it was a defining moment and it made the difference. It's the same with the cross. We can still look and listen to the news and see the mess of the, the world. And I'm going to come on to where, when the defining, the VE day will be. But actually, the cross has broken the power of sin is broken, is dealt with once and for all the biggest enemy that we have, which is the stranglehold of sin. The things that we cannot, the power that sin seems to have over our lives that we can't break. Well, Neil said last week, actually the cross enables us to overcome the problems that we have and the difficulties we have. We're not just, we're not just forgiven, we actually are empowered to overcome some of the chains that hold us back. It could be self-confidence, it could be a, a, um, a lack of temp a temptation that keeps holding us back. We have the resources to overcome them. And we're going to come on to that in a bit. It's broken the power of sin. And it's also broken another power, which is the fear of death. Lots of people fear death. Because death was the e is the end. It's seen as that the, the end when we're separated from one another. And we don't know and fear maybe of what might happen after that. Some people are fearful of what might happen or might not happen afterwards as well. Well, if Jesus defeated death, we have no reason to fear it anymore. It doesn't get the last word. We've always said that language quite a lot. It doesn't get the last word. Death is no longer the end. In fact, death is actually something to be celebrated for Christians because it actually means we're going to be free from all the mess. We're going to be face to face with Jesus. We're going to be living in glory. I don't know exactly how that's going to look, but that's going to be amazing. So it's not anything to be fearful of, of for us. It's actually something to, be, to look forward to. And fourthly, the fourth D, fourth D was drastic action. It was costly. It cost everything. For somebody, he talks in here about um, somebody it's, uh, might, be, might lay down their lives for a good man. Where are we? Uh, here we uh, Where is it? Yeah. Verse 7. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. Now, keeping in with the imagery of war... That can happen in war, can't it? People might die for their platoon members, or their comrades. They might lay their lives down. They might, they're willing to do that, to sacrifice themselves for people that are in their platoon. Um, but to do it for your enemies, who's willing to do that? Nobody's willing to do that. The army aren't willing to do that. We're not willing to do that, really, are we? If we, if, if, we, might, be, we might possibly, possibly dare to die for a good person. But to die for enemies... Now that is incredible. Um, so it was costly. It was the biggest cost. To give your life is the biggest cost we can give. To give your life for somebody who hates you, um, that's an even bigger price, isn't it? And God, it was the biggest price God could give. So the thought, God took action. It was deliberate, so it was the right time. It was decisive. It leaves us in no doubt. It was definitive. It made the difference and brought the power of the enemy. And it was drastic. It was costly. It wasn't just something that God 
could flippantly do because he's God. Oh, well, it's all right. It's just God, so it probably didn't, didn't mean much anyway. No, it meant everything. So God has acted. We were saved. And so what is our response? Well, there's loads of different responses. But when I remind myself of this at least every Easter, I do this, we obviously we do this probably most weeks because we're singing songs about it as well and we read in the scriptures. It gives us a sense of awe, a sense of gratitude for for what God's done, even if you can't be grateful for any of the circumstances in your life right now, even if everything's a mess in your life, and even if you've had the worst upbringing ever, and you can't imagine the future being any better, we can look at the cross and say, God has done all of this for me. God loves me. We can live with a sense of security, a sense of expectation that's good, a sense of gratitude, a sense of wonder as well. Why would God go to such lengths for people that were weak, ungodly enemies keep forgetting the fourth one sinners thank you was that the same one I forgot last time all right mm, maybe God's trying to tell me something mm. uh, maybe you're trying to tell God something <laughs> okay <laughs> so God has acted we were saved um, but God is still acting we are saved we are being saved and um, and Paul, again, makes grand statements in this. There's loads of them in this very, very short passage. So I'm just going to go through them. First of all, he talks about being justified, verse 1. Now, just, I don't know whether any of you... Have any, hands up if you've ever stood in a, uh, before a judge. No, don't put your hands up. You're right. Oh, <laughs> just you, Jill. Nice one. It's all right. Nobody knew. Nobody turned around at that point. Uh, so even if you haven't stood in front of a Jill... A Jill? <laughs> Has anyone stood in front of Jill? Like, feeling really not... <laughs> Feel like they've done something wrong. <laughs> I have. Um, it's quite scary, actually. Um, even if we haven't stood in front of a Jill or a judge, um, you've probably stood in front of a parent or a teacher or somebody in authority knowing that you've done something wrong. I know I often share about what a rotter I was when I was a kid. Um, I'm going to share you another little bit. I could, I'd never admit when I did something wrong, even though nearly all the time I did it wrong. And I remember this one time that I called a dinner lady a really rude, rude name. And, and uh, <laughs> sorry, it's not funny. It's funny. <laughs> Shouldn't be funny, but it is. And um, she said, who's that? And obviously nobody put the hand up. And uh, I wasn't willing to admit it. And uh, she said, right, every, you know that thing that teachers do, which is really unfair. Do you ever do this, Jill, where you say, right, everybody's going to be in detention if nobody... If nobody you ever done that? Occasionally. Occasionally. <laughs> it's really unfair, that. <laughs> Anyway, and she thought, you know, just to shame the individual into action, so he thought, you know, obviously they're going, they're going to own up because they know that the rest is not fair and the rest, but no, I'm not willing to do that. <laughs> anyway, basically she knew it was me, but she couldn't prove it. And then it was between me and my mate, so she did let everybody go, so she bluffed. Um, and she let everybody go and left me, and she still, she's like, look, I don't even care, just admit it. And I still would not admit, because it was like... I would wanted to justify myself. I didn't want to be found out, even though I knew I was guilty. And, you know, for honest, probably I'm not the only one, I hope, in the room that, that has been in that position. But we've all done stuff that we're not, we're, we're, we're ashamed of. We've all done things that we know were wrong. Maybe even if we didn't know they were wrong at the time, in hindsight, we knew actually we deserved some kind of punishment or retribution for it. I know it's a trivial example. But it's the, the image he uses of a, almost of a law court that actually you're standing before the judge here, the perfect one who knows everything anyway, and actually we've done stuff wrong. But instead of us being punished for it, we're now justified. It makes no sense. We've no reason to be justified because actually we, are, we should be condemned because we have done stuff that's wrong. 
not only in our own eyes, but in God's eyes as well. But actually what he says is that we have been justified through faith. The key is faith. If you have faith in what God has done for you, then God looks at you and pardons you. You've no, no punishment necessary anymore. You are justified. So, uh, secondly, we have peace with God. Again, verse 1. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And this isn't just a sense of calmness or serenity or tranquility. This is a sense that a reality that God knows the very, very worst of us at every moment in our lives and yet is still at ease with us. I get the picture of when two friends sit together and they're so comfortable with one another that they don't actually need to talk. And you, you, you've had relationships like that where you, you know, you're with people and you don't really, you, don't, you know them so well, they know you so well, at, you don't need to say anything. And I get that sense that that's what we start with God. God knows us so well that we can just be at ease with who we are because he knows everything, the best and worst about us, and yet he still is at peace with us. Secondly, uh, verse 2. We, we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. We stand in grace. This is an, a, unique, um, a unique statement about, about Christianity. There's no other religion that has this, to my, to my knowledge anyway. Most religions work on the, prop, the principle of you do these things and therefore you earn God's favor. And actually, a lot, most religions that are like that, um, Islam is one of them, they still have no sure assurance that they've done enough. So even to their death, dying day, they still don't know whether they've done enough, whether the scales are balanced well enough, whether I've done enough good to outweigh the bad in God's eyes that God will accept me into, into eternity. Christianity is completely the opposite of that. We don't do anything. There are no scales in that, in that respect. We can do, the scales can be completely tipped the other way, but if we, have, we stand in grace because God has given us what we don't deserve already through the cross, the action has already been done. And I'm not telling you anything you don't know already, but... It's good to be reminded, isn't it? Whatever we've done and whatever we will do, we still stand in grace. It's already been done for us. Which is an amazing, amazing position to be in, isn't it? We can do, it doesn't mean that, and Paul in, in his, obviously, in, if he just did these verses in isolation, you could think, oh, well, then people say, well, what's the point even trying? We'll just behave like however we want because God's going to forgive us. Well, obviously, Paul deals with that in another part of the, the same letter. Like, does that mean that we just live whatever, in every, any way we want and just, you know, go, go for broke because God will forgive us whatever, like some people say. Well, no, because, and anyway, why would, we, why would we want to? If God has been that gracious to us, why would we want to then continue to, be, to, to, to dis, disobey and be bad? We don't. We would want to respond with that awe and gratitude. Verse 5, even more amazing, we are given the Holy Spirit. Now, again, I don't know fully how this works. I really don't. Uh, but it's a statement which, if true is infinitely important to us because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. God gives himself, his Holy Spirit, to us. Now, how does that look? People say, oh, Jesus is living in my heart. That's the kind of thing you, you, you use to, to explain to children. Um, what happens when you become a Christian? Jesus, lives. But actually, there is something. Does he come in your heart? What is it? I don't know, but God is in some way living in us. I don't know how that works, but that's pretty amazing, isn't it? That we no longer, we're not only given the motivation to live a different way, but now we're given the, the means to do it as well. It's not just us trying to, God's done everything for us, so I'm going to really try hard because he's so good to me, although that's true. He's been so good to me, but he's also now given me himself to enable me to live the life that I want to live anyway. 
And that's the difference. When you, become, when you, get, you get a hold of these amazing truths, it's like, flipping heck, I, I, my, my whole desires start to change. I start to change not because I'm trying to change, but because God's doing something in me. I start to want different things. I start to want to be, behave differently. My attitudes start to change. And when I, look, when I question every Easter and I go back and say, have I actually changed? I look back at what I was like when I was 17 and I think, I've changed dramatically. Nowhere near as much as I want to. And when I compare myself to other people, I think, oh, I'm pretty rubbish, really. There's non-Christians that are still miles better than me. But actually, if I look back at where I've come, I've come way, a massive way. And you can do the same. You can't compare yourselves. We shouldn't compare ourselves to one another. But you can, we can all look back on who we were before when we met Christ and how much God is, is changing us through the years. So verse 10, we are reconciled to God. I've talked about already how sin separates us from God. We, can, we sense it in our own relationships. Sin separates us from one another. It's really difficult to bridge the gap when, when there's been hurt there. Well, we've been reconciled to God. The, the gap, the chasm has been bridged through the cross. Um, we can live with a constant sense of God's presence. Verse 17, two things in verse 17. We are given the free gift of righteousness. Again, this one is another one that gets, gets sort of taken out of context um, sometimes. But essentially, righteousness is choosing the right thing to act, saying the right thing, and having the right attitudes. That's righteousness. Living right. Okay, making the right choices. And actually, what, what happens when you become a Christian is that God looks at Jesus, who's always made the right decisions, always had the right attitudes, and always says the right thing, and he looks at us and he sees Jesus in our place. Because he looks at the cross, where we should have been, and he sees Jesus in our place. That, to me, is mind-blowing. To think that God looks at me and doesn't look at and see all the faults and the failures and all the mess that I make and the attitudes that are wrong. He looks at me and he sees the righteousness of Jesus. It's almost like you've got... a, a some, a mask, and uh, it's not the best um, terminology, but you've got, you're wearing a, a costume that's not, not you. It's Jesus. He's looking at me and he's seeing Jesus. That is incredible. And still in the same verse, he's probably even more incredible. He says, we reign in life. How much more, where are we, verse 17, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and all the gift of righteousness reign in life? Through the one man, I thought, how do we reign in life? What does that even mean? And I think, I might be wrong, but I think it's to do with this overcoming the, the power, the stranglehold that sin has over us. That It's not that we have perfect lives. It's not that we always make the right decisions. But it is that we can. We have the means of overcoming the, the enemy. We can reign over the things that hold us back. So these are amazing truths, are they not? Yes. Amen. Amen, brother. Uh, these are amazing statements which, if true, should have an infinite effect on our lives, shouldn't they? It should be absolutely transform transformational. If we could really get hold of these truths and keep reminding ourselves of these truths, we should be the most secure, loving, gracious, empowered people on earth, shouldn't we? <laughs> Thank you. Uh, but also, if true... We, we couldn't help but overflow to other people. If this is true for us, this should be true. We would want to, not only should we, we should, it should automatically come out of us, but we should also want to tell other people about it, shouldn't we? We can't help but partner and act in his name. If God is, God's love is poured into our hearts and the Holy Spirit is working within us, we should, want to, we should be flowing out with that to other people. And it's, you know, I, last time I preached, I often, I told you that, that 
sometimes I'm too quick to want to fix things. So somebody says there's a problem and I want to I want to get straight in there. I want to be a person of action. Say, right, I want to help you, then let's do it. Let's change something. And sometimes you can act without having the knowledge and the and having the insight, and it can actually do more damage than good. But actually the opposite is also true. You can know everything, you can know all these amazing truths, you can know the scriptures inside out, you can actually be really grateful and have wonder at what God has done for you but it can remain private to you. I have a great, brilliant faith in God. I feel really at ease. Um, You know, I love my life. Um, I'm content. And God helps me to get through life uh, as best as I can. And it can can remain private. That was not the intention of the cross. That should never be an intention. And I actually think that if you do get hold of this, and I'm not saying you, I'm sure you all do, if we get hold of this, we can't help but overflow anyway. And um, James wrote as well, the Apostle James wrote to the, his early church, faith without action is dead. Again, once I, again if, if, if Christianity is not true, it's of no, it's of no importance to anybody. But also it's true, the, same, the same is true about without action. If we have a faith without action, it's of no good to anybody. It's of no good to the world. It's of no good to other people. It's dead. May as well not have it. So, Action is important. God took action and God expects us to take action. The difficulty is, is how to act and when. And one of the things that, uh, when I interested, I've, I've only just recently um, finished teaching after 13 years of, of teaching music. And in about the third year of teaching, somebody, one of the students gave me this little card that says on it, this prayer. Um, as to Ian from Naomi, kiss, 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 which really as a teacher is always a bit, unsettling <laughs> but I, I took that as a just she just thought it was a nice thing to do um, but it says you'll know it because it's really most of you might know this prayer already but God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change the courage to change the things I can and wisdom to know the difference apparently it was a guy an, an American uh, theologian who died in 1971 called Reinhold Niebuhr um, and I had it on my desk all that time. And a lot of the time, in the first year of teaching, I've, I met a lot of frustrations with the culture. I didn't realize how bad the culture was. I didn't realize what the culture was like. And it frustrated the heck out of me. And even in that first year, I was like doing that. I don't know if anybody's seen Jerry Maguire. I've only seen like the little bit where he stands up in the office and was like, who's with me? And everybody's going, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, so then he goes to like do whatever he's going to do. And nobody's with him. I did that in the first year of teaching where I was like, right, we just need to go to management and just tell them that all this paperwork is nonsense. And just say, like, come on, if we all just do it together, like, we can, well, so I'm sure they'll, they'll have to break down one. They'll have to, and I was like, come on. And then looking around, everybody's just going, back on the laptop. What is he talking about? So I had this, like, I was like, come on, we can change the culture. And I realized, I mean, Maggie, it was a great story, Maggie's last week, where, you know, she got to make such a difference to the culture, the systemic problems that were in the culture. And, and you know, thank God for that. I've not been able to do that, and it's not for whatever reason that's not happened in my in any of the, in either of the two jobs I had, and I tried done little bits, but you know, but the end I was like I can't hack the culture anymore. I've got to get out of this place. I did, I did as much as I could, but actually maybe if I'd maybe if I'd read this prayer a bit more and did not just be like a little token on my desk that I never saw, um, it, I might have had a bit more peace there. Sometimes it's called the serenity prayer, but I think serenity is not a, a serene life is is cool, you know, to live calm and tranquil but as Christians that's not what we're called to is it I would call it the, the, the wisdom or the courage prayer actually it depends where your focus is doesn't it give me yeah give me serenity when I can't do anything 
But actually, give me courage to do as much as I can. And God, give me wisdom to know when to act. I mean, that's, that's what we're called to, isn't it? We're not called, called to just be, oh, aren't you just a really peaceful person? No, you're a person of action and you're a person of wisdom as well. Um, anyway, so, and, and I was going to give some examples of, of people that have taken action already. And, and Neil's mentioned some this morning, this is the other bit I was saying, that some of you have taken drastic, deliberate, decisive, definitive action to to empower and to, to in the lives of other people. Some of you are fostering or adopted children. Some of you are working on the behalf of, of, of poor people or people without a voice. Some of you are caring for the sick. Some of you have broken from abusive relationships. Some of you are overcoming or have overcome abuse and addiction. Some of you are helping others to do the same. Some of you are being peacemakers in your family. The more we get to know one another, the more inspirational these stories become. The more I hear from other people and the more we take the time to listen to one another, the more I see we, we are people that are doing this. Um, this isn't me trying to tell you to do stuff you're not already doing. You're doing amazing things and I'm constantly inspired by, by the stories. And that's just, and as a little aside, that's what we're trying to build here, isn't it? Not a group of individuals that are just coming at and based around this interest in Jesus, we're actually building a community. And part of what we say, we want to listen to one another's stories because it's inspirational. Right, nearly time to finish. I've, I've already probably run over. Finally, God, God will act. We will be saved. And I'm going to, last bit from Romans 5. Um, Paul says, um, since we have been now justified by his blood, how much more will we be saved from God's wrath through him? God has been and is being patient with the human race. Now, this is a bit none of us ever want to really focus on too much because it sounds like, you know, fire and brimstone. It's not. It's just what I think the scriptures say. And it's an an unavoidable truth, I believe. If true, again, is of infinite importance. God doesn't want anybody to be separated from him. But there will be a day when it's too late. There will be a judgment day. And actually, if we're all honest, we've said this before, we want people like Hitler to be judged. (laughs) don't we? And we want people that didn't do anywhere near as bad things as Hitler to be judged as well, because actually in us, there's something that tells us that that that's right, that that's just, that people that are evil should be, ju- should be judged. And that's, that's the sort of God we have. There will be a day when that happens, a day of wrath that will be poured out on the evil forces, a day of judgment. But because of the cross, anyone through faith can be saved from that day of wrath, from that day of reckoning. We can be justified. Every, and that is open to people like Hitler and Myra Hindley and all the worst characters we can think of in human history. That is open to them just as it's open to us. That is, but it, it, it's accessed through faith. That's what it is. It's not a condition. It's not we're trying to earn anything. It's just access through faith. It's a gift that's given. You can deny a gift that is given to you. Somebody can try and give you a gift and you can say, no, thank you. you I'm not receiving the gift. That is what, what, what we can do that as well. God offers us the gift and we have to receive it. And that's faith. That's how we access it. So we will be saved from wrath. And then in, in chapter 8, there's loads in Romans you could talk about. But in chapter 8, he talks about how the whole earth, not just us, but the whole of creation will be released from this, these shackles of sin. Not a week goes by where we, see, we don't see it on the news, you know, environmental disasters, you know, famine, all sorts of stuff. The, the environment is broken as well. It's not just us that are broken, the environment is broken, the world is broken. Global warming, we, we see it, the melting of the, the glaciers, we see it, it's happening. It's not getting better, it's getting worse. <laughs> uh, that is happening. But there will be a day when that will be made new. And 
he talks about that we will be adopted and our bodies will be redeemed. For, for those of us who have illness, for those of us who have groans of aches and pains, it says we're groaning. The creation is groaning. Oh, cool. Uh, it talk, Paul talks about in this chapter that the creation is groaning. We groan, when I, I groan when I watch the news and I read the stories, but creation is groaning. It's in such a mess, it's waiting to be renewed. And the, the, the big hope of the Christian faith is not just that we, we are saved, but the whole of the universe, the whole of the world is going to be released from bondage. The whole of the world will be renewed. And again, I don't know what that's going to look like. I really don't. But what we're promised in scriptures, if, if, if true, they are of infinite importance. We are, true, we are promised that there will be no more death, there will be no more decay, There'll be no more disease, there'll be no more war, there'll be no more famine, there'll be no more poverty, there'll be no more environmental disasters, there won't be need for police, there won't be need probably for medical staff. I hope people aren't going to be unemployed and really out of work because I don't know how that's going to work because there won't be firemen needed, there won't be policemen needed, you know, they're not going to need a crime prosecution service. There's going to be all these people unemployed, but I'm sure God's got a plan for that as well. Maybe we won't need money, I don't know. But... Revelation 21 talks about, gives us a glimpse of what it'll be like. He talks about a new earth. The earth is going to be renewed. And the cap, I presume it's the capital. It doesn't actually say capital. But the city of Jerusalem it talks about. So I'm presuming that's going to be the center focus of it. And it talks about it being a place full of light, beauty, truth, purity, harmony. And a place where God will live himself and we won't even need the sun. And this sounds crazy. That we won't even need the sun. Scientists talk about the sun going to be burning out. Well, that's all right because we won't need the sun because God is going to be the light because he's so bright. Now, I don't know what that's going to look like, but that is a glorious future, isn't it? If this is all nonsense, what I'm talking today, it's of no importance. And all we can, and all we can say is it might just G you up to live a better life. But if it's true, and I believe it is, it's of infinite importance. It's of infinite importance, not just for you and your personal life, but for all of your family, for all your friends, and for the world at large. It's the only solution to the mess we're in, and it's good news, isn't it? Yeah? So I know I've gone over, but I got carried away. So and finally, God has acted. We were saved so we live with a sense of awe and security and gratitude. God is acting. We are saved. So we continue to act in his name. We overflow through the love of the Holy Spirit and through the him powering us in our lives to act in his name. And God will act. There will be one more act. There is another act to come, the final act. And we, our response is that we will live with a firm hope of the future. Amen? Amen. Amen. Um, do you want to come back, Lorna and Co.? Let's respond with some, declaring some, some songs of worship and um, our gratefulness and declare what we believe is true. Thank you, Lord, that these are truths that we can build our lives upon. Thank you that they are not just platitudes that make us feel better about our lives and about ourselves. But, Lord, we believe they're true and that they are the hope for the world. Not just for ourselves, but for the creation of the world as well, Lord. And we believe in what you've said and we choose to believe it again today. Thank you for the cross. Thank you that you've demonstrated your love for us. Thank you that you continue to demonstrate your love for us even when we mess up, even when we make bad choices, even when our attitudes are not right. 
But Lord, we submit again to your love, to your truth, and to your spirit. And we pray, Lord, you keep, would you keep working in us and through us, Lord, for the good, not only of us, but for, for those around us. In the name of Jesus. Amen.